You're listening to Human Rights Talks, organized by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. Hello, welcome to Human Rights Talks, MIGS's human rights-centered uh, podcast. Today, I'm very uh, happy to welcome Kareem Shaheen. You are a freelancer, a journalist, but also a former um, Guardian correspondent for the Middle East and Turkey. Thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So we want to talk about different subjects today, but perhaps we want to start with what is happening in Beirut. And I know you've, you've I think, lived there. From the media and then from the people on the ground, we've clearly learned that corruption was flagrant in Beirut. Could you tell us a little bit more about the the level of corruption and how ingrained it was in all levels of of government and perhaps society? That's right. So I spent about uh, three years in Beirut working there for for local uh, news and for The Guardian. And um, and yeah, you're right. I mean, Lebanon's political system is corrupt to the core. Lebanon's system is based on a a political framework framework that was developed, uh, you know, in order to end the Lebanese civil war uh, back in the early 90s. Um, and the idea was to have, was to divide seats in, in parliament and, uh, and in the government among the sects and all the different religions that, you know, that, that Lebanon has, I believe it's 17 or 18 different official sects. Um, and so, you know, you have uh, prime minister is always a Sunni Muslim, the president is always a Maronite Christian, and the um, uh, and the speaker of parliament is always a Shiite Muslim. This has obviously, um, you know, led to a, a system by which, you know, uh, former warlords who had taken part in the in the conflict, you know, became the politicians of today and, and the elites of today, and and uh, you know they built vast patronage networks, uh, you know, through which they use their influence, uh, you know, to promote their you know people who are allied to them, people who are loyal to them, um, and through which you know they use to you know divide the the wealth of the country among their their individual patrons, um, and you know because everybody benefits from the system, uh, you know most of the people at the top or or the political elite class has no interest in, in reforming it or changing it. Uh, you know, so the last few years, uh, Lebanon—I can't remember the last time it had an official budget passed by, um, uh, you know, by its government. There's constant wrangling over, you know, influence over various important sectors in the economy, like energy and uh, electricity right. and, and so on, that are profitable, uh, you know, to the patrons and to their networks. Um, you know, you always know that there are various uh, areas in the economy that are under the influence of various, you know, political parties political leaders, um, and all of them are grooming their own uh, individual, um, you know, family members or sons to take over after them. And this obviously led to a broadly corrupt, uh, you know, economic system and uh, and financial system, which, uh, you know, essentially relied on a Ponzi scheme to, um, uh, you know, that, that pegged the Lebanese currency to the dollar and resulted in a system whereby Lebanon uh, offered uh, very high interest rates to, um, uh, you know, to foreign depositors um, in exchange uh, for essentially uh, nothing, <laughs> really. That was, uh, you know, the, the the economy was really built up on a house of cards, and and uh, that system could not last for very long. And uh, eventually led to a currency collapse uh, once the country started running out of dollars, and, and you know this was accelerated by the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, the country defaulted for the first time, uh, you know, in, in March, uh, for the first time in its history. It's it's on track to becoming the you know first Arab country in history to experience hyperinflation. Um, so you know all of this, all these crises are, are happening all at the same time. You know, the price of foodstuffs is, is really rising very fast. Um, and, you know, the only people who are inured to it uh, are the, um, you know, the, the political class while everybody else suffers. And, and uh, on top of it came, you know, the, the explosion that happened uh, 
mm-hmm. you know, last week, um, and uh, you know, which where literally, you know, the entire city was was put at risk of, of uh, you know being completely destroyed by the sheer neglect and negligence of, of uh, this political class. Yeah, I personally have a, a friend over there who was um, who almost died in the uh, in the attack as well. So it's personal too. Um, and for me, it, it seems that in a way it was the last straw for Lebanese people, but. I usually see them as very hopeful, but I feel like that hope is perhaps gone. It's just they don't know, even though they're on the street and protesting and the government has resigned. I, I'm, I'm, do you see any hope among your friends in, in Lebanon that, that something is going to change, truly? I don't, unfortunately. I mean, th- there was there was great hope in October, you know, when the uh, when there was an uprising there that, um, you know, targeted the political class and, and that led to the resignation of the government. Uh, unfortunately, you know, the, the resignation of political uh, governments uh, from authority in Lebanon um, very often doesn't really lead to structural reforms. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's simply a, um, a, you know, a, a sort of opening the steam valve a little bit to, to let us under the pressure. Um, and it doesn't really lead to structural changes. And, um, and that's what I see happening right now. In fact, instead of uh, hope, you know, there's, there's great anger, certainly, uh, but a lot more people are leaving. A lot more people are talking about, uh, you know, okay, I think we, it's time we give up and, and we, we leave this place because nothing's ever going to change. Um, I know a lot of, uh, you know, expat friends who, who decided that the risk of, of being there was, was really not worth, mm-hmm. not worth it for them or for their children. You know, uh, when you're going about your day and all of a sudden, you know, your, your house and life is basically shattered because of nothing that, you know, that, that is your fault. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I think there, this is mixed in with, uh, the fear that, um, you know, the, the situation is, is so awful that uh, nobody really knows how much worse it can get and, uh, and nobody wants to risk that either. Um, and so, you know, while there is a lot of anger and a lot of fear, uh, I think there's also fear of the unknown of what would happen if, you know, uh, even beyond, you know, the, the, the people are scared of changing anything anymore because everything is so uncertain, right? Their lives have been destroyed. Their homes have been destroyed. Uh, they, they don't want an added instability factor, uh, you know, within all of that. And, and sadly, that may well benefit uh, the political class that, that people wanted to remove a few months ago. And how do you think, I mean, you, you spoke about the um, political system and how it's divided. Do you think that, I mean, we I, I, from what I've heard, a lot of people believe that this system should be completely changed. But what's the feasibility of this happening, and what's um, what you envision, and how could how could this system be changed, and should the international community have a say in this or not? Because clearly, when Macron went to um, Lebanon, I think last week, he was almost welcomed as a hero, which surprised me a little bit, considering even though I know the ties between France and and Lebanon are quite tight, it's still a little bit surprising. So, what's your view for 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 the next government or the or governments to come. I think, like you said, it needs to be a, a truly structural change. You know, uh, there hasn't been really a government in Lebanon in, in recent years that wasn't beholden to foreign powers and, and to the, uh, uh, you know, the, the pat- patronage interests of their individual, um, you know, the individual parties that, that hold uh, influence in, in parliament. And so, you know, you'd want to begin by, you know, having a completely technocratic government that isn't, um, you know, 
beholden to any particular political party, which uh, which is uh, you know close to impossible uh, to to accomplish in, in a place like Lebanon. Um, you know, you need to have uh, something like an international investigation that that actually delves into the real causes um, of the um, of the of the explosion. Uh, sadly, Lebanon doesn't have a lot of great uh, experience with that. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, the the tribunal that uh, by by coincidence, the tribunal that was uh, investigating the uh, the political assassinations that happened in Lebanon uh, in 2005 to 2008 that you know were widely blamed on the on the Syrian government uh, which mm-hmm. was occupying Lebanon at the time. Um, they're actually come, they were supposed to come up with their verdict, um, you know, in the uh, assassination of the prime minister, uh, former prime minister Rafiq Hariri, the, the father of Saad Hariri, mm-hmm. who's the current, uh, you know, was the former prime minister in Lebanon as well. Uh, you know, they were supposed to come up with their verdict last week, and, and they delayed it to this week, uh, you know, because of uh, obviously the the explosion and, and the fact that the Lebanese were dealing with with its aftermath. Uh, but you know, it took um, 15 years uh, for you know that that trial to completely pan out, and uh, and it's happening. You know, uh, the the accused are members of Hezbollah there, and they are uh, you know being tried in absentia because the party obviously refused to you know turn them over uh, to an international investigation that they've said you know is influenced by the by the U.S. and, and Israel and, and and so forth. Uh, and so you know, there's a there's a real problem of credibility there when it comes to having an international investigation mm-hmm. that can actually uncover all of this. Uh, what we can know for sure is is that if there isn't an impartial international investigation, that the you know the the crime will probably end up being blamed on uh, you know lower level bureaucrats as opposed to uh, you know the politicians and, and senior level people who allowed something like this to happen. You know it's uh, it's been revealed that the president knew that it had happened uh, or th- that the uh, explosive material was there and um, you know posed the risk to uh, to the population and yet took no action. I, I don't think anybody's going to be held to account. From the political yeah. elites, unless there is there is a major international, um, uh, you know, in, investigation uh, into all this, and um, and I think the you know, the, the the last uh, part of this is you know with, with Macron, um, I think it's um, it's evident just how sick the Lebanese are of, of the political system, um, and uh, you know, and the, one of the major calls that were in the aftermath of the explosion was that they really wanted any aid or any assistance that comes to Lebanon, uh, you know, to go through. Yeah, to go directly to the people, you know, and to go through mm-hmm. them instead of, uh, you know, through their politicians. And, and um, you know, Macron was the only leader to go to Lebanon and to actually go to the place where, where uh, you know, most of the damage had happened. I mean, I lived in that neighborhood, um, uh, you mm-hmm. know, when I was there, you know, Jameza and Marm Khayel. And, uh, and it's primarily a Christian neighborhood, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so you would think that the president and, uh, you know, who is, uh, who is a Christian himself, uh, you know, would have the courage to go there. Um, but uh, but you know they didn't and um, and Macron going there uh, you know tapped into this this feeling that they'd been failed by all of their political leaders um, mm-hmm. and so it's not it's not surprising at all that they would harken back even to an era of uh, you know colonial occupation yeah. uh, you know, just because uh, the the situation is is so terrible and awful right now that um, that you know when when you're drowning uh, you don't look who's who's uh, lending out a hand right. Mm-hmm. And what's what's the likelihood of a international investigation? You think is there can, can enough pressure be put on on Lebanon on on the government or whatever is remains of a government to um to have an international investigation? Um, I think that's going to be very very difficult to to do. Um, I mean, given who holds the the levers of power um, in in the country right now. I mean, you know the. Um, when you think of like the major powers that are involved in Lebanon, uh, you know you've got uh, uh, you know usually it's Saudi Arabia and Iran, and mm-hmm. uh, you know in terms of 
international powers usually have the the U.S. and uh, and France, you know, as a, as a former uh, you know colonial um, uh, occupier. Um, but you know, in recent years, Saudi Arabia has sort of um, uh, you know taken its hand out. Um, they've decided that um, uh, you know they won't be giving any assistance to the Lebanese state. Um, you know, as a consequence of the fact that Hezbollah is is, um, is the most powerful um, uh, party in in the country, and um, and they hold the most influence, and um, and so the Saudis didn't see any reason to you know continue contributing money uh, to it. Uh, so you know, in order to to allow for an international investigation, all these um, various uh, powers that are vying for influence in Lebanon uh, need to agree uh, on something like this. One way that this could be, um, you know. Accomplished is through, for example, um, you know, imposing it as a requirement of an aid package, mm. uh, you know, from from any of these international powers. Uh, but you know, uh, the IMF, for example, has been in talks for a, uh, I think, a ten or eleven billion dollar bailout package for for the Lebanese government, um, and the Lebanese government has failed to agree to any of the, uh, you know, even symbolic reforms uh, that the IMF needs uh, in order to unlock some of these uh, aid packages because it would, uh, you know. Affect the uh, the patronage networks and yeah. the influence that they and the control that they wield over the economy, uh, and so any uh, potential idea, potential suggestion for an international investigation um, is likely to come uh, come up against all of these hurdles of entrenched interests and, and foreign influence and so forth. Um, that that uh, you know, even though the people have been demanding it for for so long, I, I don't think it's um, it's going to really happen. Yeah. Well, I just wanted also to to um, talk about Syria because I know you've talked a lot about um, Syria. You know, not only ISIS, but um, who is involved now over there. Um, clearly, you know, I think the international or Western governments have given up on on Syria. We don't. I mean, we don't hear that much about it anymore. But Russia is very much involved, and in, in Turkey as well. What's the situation now like in terms of? Uh, foreign powers that are involved and Bashar al-Assad's future, considering the economic situation is is absolutely terrible. And I know there there are also internal internal tensions among the Bashar clan or the people around him. Yeah, so so you know the the military conflict, as uh, as you say, you know we don't hear a lot about it anymore. It's because it's largely frozen uh, since March. Um, you know, and uh, before that, there was uh, there was a Syrian government campaign on Idlib, which was the, the last uh, uh, rebel-held uh, province, and um, you know this uh, this ended with uh, Turkish intervention because uh, the campaign was sending hundreds of thousands of people to the Turkish border, um, and you know it was threatening to have another major refugee wave, uh, you know, flowing into Turkey and, and uh, possibly beyond that, uh, you know, into Europe. And so uh, Turkey intervened militarily to, to halt that campaign and they succeeded in doing so. And so there hasn't been any major fighting uh, since uh, since March. Uh, the country is largely controlled by um, Bashar al-Assad, or at least forces that, uh, you know, are loyal to him, um, except for, you know, small pockets. Uh, there's, there's a region in the north that's under Turkish control. Uh, there's a region in the northeast that's under Kurdish control. And there's a... Um, uh, region in the northwest that's under uh, rebel control. But the vast majority of the country is, is under Assad's uh, control at the moment. Uh, now, the other uh, you know side of this is, as you said, is the economic side. Uh, and, and there is where Bashar al-Assad may actually be facing an existential crisis uh, because the country could not be at worse uh, shape right now. Uh, you know, Syrians endured 10 years of warfare and, um, you know, they hope that once the, the war was, you know, officially over um, and, um, you know, 
one side had won that there might be some stability again there might be reconstruction funds there might be a, an economic recovery uh, but none of that is happening right now um, first of all uh, you know no European countries are willing to send in any reconstruction yeah. funds uh, without some meaningful uh, progress towards political reform and the Assad regime has indicated uh, that it is not willing to take even symbolic steps uh, you know like uh, towards towards any sort of reform and one of one of the avenues um, uh, is, you know, the the uh, uh, like a constitutional committee that's supposed to be drafting a serious post-war constitution, and that's not really getting anywhere. Uh, there's supposed to be a, um, uh, you know, th there were elections a few weeks ago um, mm -hmm. that were widely seen as, as a complete sham. Um, so, you know, the regime has no interest in, in political reform. Uh, add to that, uh, you know, the U.S. Uh, last month imposed, uh, you know, the the Caesar Act uh, sanctions, which are sort of wide-ranging sanctions um, that are meant to target, uh, you know, Syrian government officials that were complicit in war crimes, uh, but also their partners in places like Iran and places mm -hmm. like uh, like Lebanon and so on. Um, and and that's uh, that's going to kill any um, attempt at reconstruction efforts, um, you know, that were happening in the background and any attempt at, at rapprochement with, um, uh, you know, with the international community more broadly um, until some concessions happen that we don't know about yet. Uh, and, it, mm -hmm. and it primarily has to do with reducing Iran's influence in, in, uh, in the region. Um, add to that, there's been a currency crash. Uh, you know, the currency has lost, uh, you know, a huge, uh, a huge amount of its, uh, of its value, uh, not just since the war, but also over the past year. Um, you know, the vast majority of Syrians are, are living under uh, under poverty. Um, mm -hmm. There's still a huge population that's internally displaced. Um, you know, there's there's immense destruction. I mean, the, the reconstruction costs are probably going to cost, uh, you know, around between somewhere between 200 and 400 billion dollars. Um, you know, add to that the coronavirus, uh, you know, which is... Um, you know, it, it didn't hit Syria hard uh, in the first um, in the first few months of the pandemic, uh, but right now the spread is really accelerating, in uh, particularly in government-controlled areas. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's, uh, uh, the official numbers uh, are over a thousand infections, but uh, but that's vastly uh, underestimating yeah. uh, the number of infections. Is you know, according to the the contacts I have, um, uh, you know, on the ground. Um, and, uh, you know, and it's, it's just spreading like wildfire and the government can't afford to actually lock down the country. Um, oh, yeah. When when the when the pandemic started, they said they imposed a partial curfew, uh, you know, because the country was simply too poor to afford a, uh, a full lockdown. And uh, and right now with with the, the rapid spread of the virus, they're just not taking any measures whatsoever. Um, other than you know individually locking down certain neighborhoods or, or areas whenever they hear about cases there, uh, but they're not really taking any any measures to um, uh, to prevent its spread. And you know weddings are happening, gatherings are happening, football matches are happening. Uh, so so that's that's going to be um, uh, something to to certainly pay attention to over the next few. And months. after ten years of war in some regions, the um, infrastructure must be absolutely terrible. And you know when you think about the level of infrastructure and, and social or physical distancing that we need during a pandemic. I mean, it's just possibly not possible in in a lot of uh, in a lot of places in Syria. That's that's right. I mean, and, and you know, when you when you think about, for example, the opposition control areas that are also having cases of, of the coronavirus, and uh, particular among medical personnel uh, mm -hmm. over there, uh, you know, it's it's simply impossible, you know, for a refugee camp that has, you know, a, uh, you know, or a series of refugee camps that have, uh, you know, over a million people uh, who have been displaced so many times. Um, it's, it's you don't have running water there, you know. Mm -hmm. to, 
be able to wash your hands regularly. You don't have the luxury of social distancing because these cramp camps are, are overcrowded. And, um, you know, you usually have multiple families even living in the same, uh, you know, tent or, or part of the settlement. Um, it's it's really difficult to do that. And, you know, in, in the government controlled areas, you're right, like there, there are so few services, um, you know, particularly during the summer months, uh, you know, there's shortages of fuel, uh, electricity, water, uh, all of that stuff. And, and then the same thing was, was happening in Lebanon as well before the, um, uh, you know, before the explosion, um, the, the country was basically because there was a shortage of dollars, you know, and, uh, and they, were, they were unable to import, um, uh, you know, diesel fuel. They're unable to import a lot of, um, uh, you know, the food stuff that they tend to import, you know, without power to power generators and you can't run hospitals. Um, you can't run refrigerators to keep, you know, food from, from going bad and, and spoiling and, um, uh, you know, and have a strategic reserve. Um, so, you know, the, the same, you see the same sort of effects on, uh, on Syria as well, where you have a lot of these, um, uh, you know, lack of services that um, are needed for for day-to-day existence and functioning yeah i was speaking with um the unhcr in yemen a few weeks ago and they were saying um the situation is the same but unfortunately as well now they're receiving money to tackle the um pandemic but no none of money to deal with infrastructure and food which is also at the heart of the problem yeah Uh, so Another thing I want to talk about is um, Saudi Arabia. Um, I think it was about two, three years ago, so there was so much hope, I would say, put in Mohammed bin Salman, um, but he turned out to be someone who murdered or ordered the murder, the, the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, and you know, human the human rights in Saudi Arabia, their record is absolutely dismal. But still, we see the United States and Canada having, you know, still relationships with Saudi Arabia. I mean, especially the US, but in Canada as well, we've provided cars or, or some kind of weapons to Saudi Arabia that they are using probably in Yemen. How should we view Saudi Arabia today how should we review our relationship with Saudi Arabia and put pressure on the government to, um, you know, respect human rights? I mean, they're not respecting human rights at all, so it's hard to know where to start. But um, what's your point of view on this? Yeah, I mean, you know, the all of this runs into the uh, the difficulty of, of essentially, um, you know, the, the, the kind of global system that we've got right now that the American president has sort of torn up. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the idea of, uh, you know, human rights based, um, foreign policy is, is certainly something that, uh, even if it were implemented would not be implemented to the extent that it would actually achieve the, the results needed because so few countries are, um, you know, adopting that as a, um, uh, you know, as a policy or as a system through which they determine, um, you know, how they conduct their foreign policy. I mean, even as you mentioned, you know, Canada, uh, you know, pays rhetorical uh, lip service to to this uh, to this idea of a human rights based foreign policy um, mm-hmm. that that is also largely focused on on you know empowering women as part of its uh, its agenda, uh, and it certainly does do that, uh, you know, to to a great extent. But um, you know, when it does come to things like weapons exports to Saudi Arabia and, uh, you know, the possibility of losing a lot of jobs uh, in exchange for something like this, or, or, you know, bringing up, for example, the issue of Uyghur Muslims, um, you know, with uh, with China, uh, you know, you see a reluctance, um, you know, to to really threaten uh, the business interests um, of the of the country in order to uh, uphold these, um, these individual uh, rules. I don't think it's really possible for any, uh, you know, for a middle power, right, like Canada to, yeah. uh, you know, be able to buy itself 
uh, you know, conduct this sort of um, the, this sort of human rights-based foreign policy. It's certainly something that uh, needs uh, and requires multilateralism, uh, you know, in order for it to be effective, uh, and not just you know a purely symbolic uh, gesture. Um, you know that that said, um, you know, Saudi Arabia today is is um, the region that is uh, is now actively aggressive and actively causing destabilization. You know, as in places like uh, like Yemen, you know, and as in previous sort of rash decisions that the Crown Prince took, uh, you know, including the, the kidnapping of the Lebanese Prime Minister, um, you know, a couple of years ago. Um, you know, the CIA obviously concluded that, that he had ordered uh, the Khashoggi assassination. Um, so, you know, and, and there have been, uh, you know, a series of other issues, you know, including the, you know, the detention of activists, you know, torture allegations um, that, uh, that are very credible. Uh, you know, just Saudi Arabia has, um, you know, it's, as somebody who grew up in the region, it's um, it's been following you know a sort of a dual track that's been um, you know partially hopeful and partially uh, you know greatly disheartening. Uh, you know, one element of it is the uh, you know the reforms that they've been uh, introducing when it comes to women's rights in the kingdom, uh, you know, which were long overdue, uh, but also you know have. Uh, an outsized effect because Saudi Arabia is seen as uh, you know regional leader when it comes to uh, you know religious uh, affairs and, uh, and issues as uh, the country that hosts uh, you know uh, Mecca and Medina the two holiest sites in Islam, um, but you know at the same time it's been uh, you know uh, this path has been in parallel with another path of, of really unbridled brutality when it comes to uh, you know the war in Yemen when it comes to its treatment of, um, uh, of political activists and, uh, and opposition uh, and uh, you know any form of uh, grassroots activism uh, in the kingdom um, you know in addition to obviously uh, you know using uh, you know the the uh, corruption trials and things like that to weed out uh, you know potential political opponents and, and to concentrate power in, in the hands of the crown prince um, so you know any foreign policy that is directed towards Saudi Arabia, I think, at the very least, ought to um, you know adopt the policy of do no harm. You know, so so mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, we lack the ability to have a multilateral response to uh, human rights, uh, to, to grave human rights issues. Uh, you know, across the world, not just in Saudi Arabia. You know, so whether it's you know Russia's involvement in, in Syria, whether it's um, uh, you know the Rohingya Muslim um, uh, crisis, you know the Uyghurs, um, all of these uh, major human rights concerns and, and issues across the world. Uh, you know, they, they don't benefit from uh, a multilateral approach that uh, that was present in the past. You know, mm -hmm. press, press freedom, women's rights, even those bread and butter uh, basic things that we all agree on um, are not being, uh, you know, uh, pushed as um, as values that need to be uh, entrenched within the international system. So absent that, I think the least we can do is, um, you know, avoid uh, doing additional harm, uh, you know, through things like weapons exports uh, to Saudi Arabia, um, you know, and by continuing to speak out about, uh, you know, these human rights issues, even if, you know, not many measures are being taken, uh, because, you know, these these issues cannot be normalized. We need to continuously uh, bring them up so that, um, uh, you know, once, once you lose if, if you don't use that sort of freedom, then you're going to lose it. Um, and uh, and so, in order to to avoid the repression of um, uh, of the press becoming normal, in order to avoid uh, you know widespread human rights abuses and atrocities becoming normal, uh, we need to to constantly uh, fight against them, to constantly raise them, to bring them up in every uh, international forum, um, uh, at least until you know we figure out what's going to happen after the U.S. elections. Yeah, one. one one final question, perhaps. Uh, last year, you wrote um, a very good article. Uh, I think your son was just born at the time, and you were speaking about 
Um, I think now being in Canada and looking at the Middle East over the past 10 years, you looked at your, you mentioned um, Iraq and Syria and um, Saudi Arabia, um, and perhaps a lot of, uh, uh, you know, religious extremism. And it seemed that you had lost a little bit of hope in what was happening over there because of all these um, tensions and conflicts. After Lebanon and what happened over there, um, where do you think the Middle East is is going over the next few years? I mean, obviously we're talking about different countries and regions, but um, do you see it changing or stagnating? Yeah, um, I mean, December feels like so, like a decade ago, doesn't yeah. it? <laughs> um, you know, uh, I mean, I I wrote in that piece that that um, you know, despite everything that was happening, I, I still had some hope um, that um, you know that there would be a measure of reform, right? That um, uh, even even within you know the the great evil that was happening, that there would be uh, you know a little ray of light, uh, you know, in things like you know the reforms that were happening. Uh, uh, you know, in Saudi Arabia on, a, on the social level, you know, I, I had hoped that that maybe some of that would start a conversation about uh, the way, about the role that religion plays in our lives, uh, about, uh, you know, how we can adapt our value systems and belief systems uh, into this modern world. And, and because Saudi Arabia has such an outsized influence, um, you know, in that it, you know, helped spread, uh, you know, the, the very strict puritanical uh, Wahhabist interpretation of Islam um, and its its spiritual and, and cultural role, you know, within the Muslim community uh, because of the presence of Mecca and Medina in there, that, that this might have um, a knockoff effect, you know, that, that it would lead to more conversations about, um, you know, how we can reform ourselves, uh, you know, in, in, the, in the current uh, political context and in the current moment. Um, unfortunately, Actually, you know, since then, I mean, things like the the, the Lebanon crisis. Um, it's funny; I wrote about it uh, a little bit yesterday, um, uh, you know, to, to let off some steam. Mm. But um, you know, one of the things that that I really thought about a lot when we were moving to Canada and when we were trying to decide whether to move to Canada was uh, was the issue of the worth of a human life. Um, and uh, you know, in, in covering Syria and Turkey and Lebanon for years, um, you know, before moving here, um, I had you know seen so many atrocities and, and crimes go unpunished you know whether it's uh, whether we're talking about chemical attacks suicide bombings uh, you know hospital bombardments and, and uh, every other crime that that happened in the region over the past few years uh, nobody was held to account for it and um, and i i really think this this absence of justice is something that um, um, that sort of uh, contorts the world order somehow. Uh, maybe a, a meta, um, uh, you know, observation. But uh, you know, believe that um, uh, that the moral arc that there is a moral arc to the universe, right? Um, and and when you have this this amount of injustice, it um, uh, it really bends it out of shape. And um, you know, that was part of the reason why we ultimately decided to leave was because I had seen so many crimes that had. Uh, gone without without justice, and um, uh, and you know I felt that uh, uh, my life and the lives of lots of my compatriots were were uh, were honestly worthless uh, because you know it could go away in an instant and uh, nobody would pay for it, and that's what the Lebanon explosion really demonstrated again for me 
And, mm-hmm. um, you know, not only was this a country that had been devastated for, for years and decades by its ruling political class, but they literally leveled, um, you know, a, a huge part of the city, well, the entire city, um, you know, and, and, they, and it wasn't even because they meant to do it. Uh, it was, yeah. you know, <laughs> out of sheer negligence, um, you know, even though the word negligence doesn't come close to describing it. Um, but, you know, it was, it was pure just lack of, anything like, or yeah yeah and um and you know and the way things are moving right now uh is that none of them again will be held accountable for, for a crime this grave you know I, I i wish i could say i was more hopeful i wish i could say that you know things like the uh, like we could maybe see the upside of the pandemic and that it brings uh, you know communities closer together and that it uh, um, you know uh, helps people maybe uh, realize how fragile life is and how important family is and uh, and how they should care for one another um but um but, but i think but i think instead with the lebanon explosion highlight was you know this this deficit of justice um and um and i until that is fixed um, I can't say I have a lot of hope for, for the region. Okay. Sorry to end well, on that depressing on that note. note uh, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us today. Um, good luck and I hope I hope your friends in, in Lebanon are okay. And uh, as well as in, in wherever, I know you've traveled so much over the Middle East that you must have friends uh, all over. So I hope everyone is doing fine and uh, keep safe. Thank you so much.